and we're going to do Psalm 28. Now, last year we ended with Psalm 27. We've been in Psalms for the summer for two years. We begin our third year. Psalm 28. And let me remind you, there are 150 psalms, and they are divided into five sections called books. And book number one includes Psalm 1 through 41, and that's the first collection of psalms. And then Psalm 42 through 72 is book two, Psalm 73 through 89 is book three, and then Psalm 90 through 106 is book 4. And then Psalm 107 through the end is book 5. This tells us something about the Psalms. All the Psalms are not the same and they're not all written by the same person. Often we think David writes all the Psalms. But that's not really the case. And these Psalms are written over a span of time. And so Bible scholars, Old Testament scholars, look and they've been able to divide these Psalms into five categories or collections of books. So this summer we're going to complete book number one, and we'll start with Psalm 28, and we will go to Psalm 41, and we will end that on September 11th, so right after Labor Day, and then we'll go back and we'll finish up Revelation, and then we'll see where we go from there. I've had many suggestions from people who wanted to go to different books. I've had suggestions from Isaiah to Ecclesiastes to Matthew to different books, so we'll just see. So let's look at Psalm 28. First of all, I want you to notice the superscription over the psalm. You see that? It's called a Psalm of David. Now there may be another title that the publishing house that publishes your Bibles puts there, but your Bible should have this phrase, a Psalm of David. Now many times a superscription will give you a hint into what the psalm is about. In this case it doesn't. All we know is that David writes it. He probably is reigning as king when he writes this. And as usual, as we've seen in all the other psalms so far, he is facing a difficult situation, which at this point is not identified. We're going to get clues and hints to what the problem is throughout the psalm, and you're going to have to take an educated guess, and I think we'll be able to figure out what the problem is that David is facing. But you'll discover that this psalm is probably, uh, pretty much a prayer. And so this is a prayer over a situation that David faces. And it's very interesting. If you look at verse 1, he says, To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Now, notice he just starts the psalm out just like that. And this is very interesting. The first thing David would do when he faced a difficult situation is pray. Now, isn't it interesting that many of us will try to figure out and solve the problem ourselves, and if that doesn't work, then we'll... Start saying, oh Lord, help! That's when we cry out. We usually don't cry out at the beginning of a problem. We usually cry out when all else fails. But David always takes this action first. Now notice the object of his prayer, to whom he prays. He says, to you, O Lord, and he identifies the Lord in this way. My rock. Notice how he personalizes his relationship with God. Do you see that? He doesn't see God as the rock. It's my rock. Now, if I said to you, what's a rock? What does a rock symbolize? Because God's not literally a rock, is he? But he's saying that God is immutable. God is dependable. 
God never wavers. He's the foundation upon which your prayer is based. And who else could you go to that never wavers, is so dependable as the Lord? And so David, he doesn't go to his advisors first. Now remember, David's a king. He's like a president of the United States. And he's facing a, what I'm going to call an international crisis. And you'd think the first thing he would do is go to his advisors. The first thing he does is he goes to the rock. He goes to the Lord. And that's what we should be doing even in little things as well as big things. Now look at the content of his prayer. He says, <clears throat> He says, To you, O Lord, my rock, I cry out. And he says this, Do not be silent to me. He not only cries out, but he he instructs God. He says, do not be silent to me. See, it's not enough for us to speak to God. God must speak to us. And when God speaks, things happen. See, he knows that the answer must come from God, and it must come by God speaking. So he says, God, I'm crying out to you. You need to speak to me. And this is the problem for many Christians. Many of us are content after we pray for God to be silent. We really don't expect Him to speak back. We don't listen for the directions that He gives us how this problem is going to be solved. We pray and then we just go on. But he expects God to speak back to him, and God is going to intervene in this situation. He doesn't want a God who's silent. And there are a lot of churches who say, well, we'll pray, and then we'll just forget about it, and it's in God's hands. But that's not what David does. He expects to hear back from God, and oftentimes we don't expect to hear back from God. And I think that David would be restless if God didn't answer. He would have been at his wit's end if if God didn't answer him. So, what do you do when God, when you pray and God doesn't answer? What do you think you should do? Yeah, you should keep praying. Uh, if God does not answer, someone put it this way, when God seems to close his ears, you need to open your mouth. Don't keep your mouth shut. Keep it open. Keep praying to the Lord. So we pray until he answers. This is a very major weakness in Baptist churches and in evangelical churches, Bible churches. We have this concept where we pray, we nod our head to God. Uh, eh, He might answer, he might not. We never have assurance that he's going to answer. But you go back in history to the old-time Methodists. And those old-time holiness Methodists back, you know, 150 years ago, they prayed until they got an answer, and that was called praying through praying through. And that's what David believes in. He believes in praying through. That's what Paul believes in. That's why Paul says, I pray without ceasing. I don't stop until I get an answer. And this is something that we need to do. Now I want to tell you something. I have prayed before and have got no assurance on a prayer. And other times I have prayed and I knew God had answered that prayer. He had spoken and said basically it's answered. Now I was shocked and I didn't say this to anybody, <clears throat> except in a roundabout way. But when Dwayne died, I was shocked. I had prayed for him 
in one situation and I had a sense that God had heard the prayer and answered it. And you will recall that Sunday morning I said, Wayne may be making a turnabout. He may be turning the corner. And that's the reason I said it. I really thought God had answered that prayer. And he did. And that was a shock. But I thought I had heard from God. So the old time Methodists didn't pray until they thought they heard from God. They prayed until God answered. Until the person got up out of their bed and walked away. And so he expects God to speak. And that's what we need to do. We need to expect God to speak. We need to get the assurance that our prayer has been answered. And look what he said. He says, I will cry to you, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me. Lest, because if you are silent, I will become like those who go down to the pit. He tells God what's going to happen if he doesn't answer. Think about that for a second. Now look, God, if you don't answer, here's what's going to happen to me. I want you to know. So you see that David is not opposed to explaining to God the situation, uh, arguing with God a little bit. And he says, and here's what happens. If you don't come to my rescue, I'm going to end up a dead duck. That's in, that's in the Hebrew language. <laughs> I'm going to go down like those who go down to the pit. That means the heathen who just die in that city. He says, I'm going to end up dying here. So I think when he says go down to the pit, he means death. And so this is a life and death prayer. I think it's a national prayer, but I think it's a prayer that deals with if God doesn't intervene, David's going to be a dead duck. Okay? So uh, now he continues his prayer. Look what he says in verse 2. Hear the voice of my supplications. See that plural there? Not my supplication. This is a false teaching. Pray once, trust God, that's it. That's nonsense. See, there's a plural. Supplication. Look, hear the voice of my supplications when I cry to you. Notice it's not silent prayer. Do you see that? You see it's his voice? Listen to the voice of my supplications. So, let me ask you this. When was the last time you prayed out loud? Now, this isn't a public prayer where someone comes to the podium and prays. This is private prayer, but notice he gives his prayer voice. You want to know how to stop your mind from wandering when you pray? Do you ever pray at night and your mind just wanders within 10 seconds? Pray out loud and you won't have a wandering mind. And so he speaks to God out loud. And it's the second time he uses the word cry there, isn't it? So he's used the word cry up in verse 1. Now he uses the word cry in verse 2, which speaks of earnestness. See? Deep desire, emotion. The cry is desperation. So hear my voice of my supplications when I cry. Now look at the rest of that verse. When I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary, he prays. Where God to, to, to God where God's presence is. And His presence on earth is where the Ark of the Covenant was in the sanctuary. So he's praying in a direction. And notice how he prays. That's the posture of his prayer there. Hands lifted up. Hands stretched out toward your holy sanctuary. What do you think those hands stretched out represent in prayer? When was the last time you prayed so eagerly and so earnestly that your hands went out? You think that that means 
If I put my hands out and cry out for help, what am I doing when I do this? It's a reaching out, isn't it? It's showing that you are basically, uh, you're, you're coming empty-handed. You have no, no solution to the situation. It may represent an act of surrender. Look, I give up. That stretched out hands can represent surrender. It can represent crying out for help, an act of desperation. Empty-handedness, like a child comes to its parents, its father, its mother, and says, reaches out. It's a cry out for help. And notice in verse 2, there are two winds there. Do you see that word wind? Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry out. When I lift up my hands. What does he ask for? Hear my voice when. Notice there's anticipation there. He doesn't say if. Now, Lord, hear my voice if I ever happen to pray for you to you once in a while. Look, it's when I do it. And he expects God to answer when he does it. When I do it, there is an anticipation of a future answer. And then he goes on and says, verse 3, Do not take away, do not take me away with the wicked and the workers of iniquity who speak peace to their neighbors but evil is in their heart. Now we have maybe a clue to what he is uh, describing. Yeah, I think he's describing here maybe a, a neighboring country or maybe a king in another nation who uh, comes to the border of that nation and says, I bring you peace. I bring you peace. I want to establish a peace treaty with this nation. But guess what? Deep down in that king's heart, he has no desire to bring peace. What does he want to do? Conquer that land. And David knows that God's going to judge those kinds of kings and those nations, and he doesn't want to end up like that. Now, maybe he's being tempted even to do that himself. Remember last year when we looked at the Psalms, we saw, and we looked at the first and second kings, we saw how kings were always making them alliances with other nations when God told them not to do it. They were always tempted to do it. And those kings and those in those situations felt. And maybe David is being tempted. Maybe his advisors are telling him to do that. But he doesn't want to end up like those other kings who make these alliances. Now, we have a switch. If, I, I'm going to, if you look at verses 1, two, two, 2, and 3, you'll notice the focus is on David. Me, 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 me. You'll see me in there all the time. right? But what happens is that in verse 4 you have a switch. Now, look what he says. Give them according to their deeds. Look, their endeavors. Give them according. Render to them. Look at verse 5. Because they. See? Into verse 5. Do not build them up. So we switch from David talking about himself and his request, and now he starts focusing it on them. Who's the them? It's those People who are wicked. And look what he says. He says in verse 4, Give them, I guess that's those workers in iniquity in verse 3, Give them according to their deeds and according to the wickedness of their endeavors and give them according to the work of their hands. Render to them what they deserve. 
Now, how many accordings do you have there? You have at least two, two or three accordings there? Give them according to, according to, according to. What does that mean? Pay them back according to. What do you think he's trying to say? In relationship to what they do? Give them what they deserve. They're doing equity? Punish them. According to. See? In accordance with the sins that they commit, punish them to that extent. He's talking about justice. He's saying, Lord, judge these evil kings, these evil nations, these evil people, whoever he's talking about. Uh, give it according to the way they act. And that last phrase in verse 4 says, Render to them what they deserve. Give them an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's that Old Testament ethic. Give them justice. No Christian wants justice, do we? Justice is you get what you deserve. You don't want what you deserve. You want mercy. right? You want forgiveness. And so he says, judge those people and render to them what they deserve. Why? Why would David ask God to judge these people? Why didn't he say, God save these people? Wait a second. Isn't that what we're supposed to pray about the lost people? Lord, save them. What does he say to do? Judge them. Why judge them? Look what he says in verse 5. Because, because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operation of His hands. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord, nor the operations of His hands. They know the works of the Lord. They know the operation and the power of God. They know it, but guess what they do? They ignore it. This is what Romans is all about. Knowing God from all of His creation and all that He does, they suppress the truth. So God turns them over to a reprobate mind and God judges them. And David knows this. He's not talking about people who are ignorant. People who sin in ignorance. They're lost. They sin in ignorance. They don't know God. They never heard the Gospel. These people know. It says they know the works of God and the operations of His hands, but they do not regard it. They ignore it. And he says, hey, those people deserve to be punished. And so he prays that God will punish them. Look what he says at the end of verse 5. He shall destroy them and not build them up. There's a positive and a negative. He will destroy them. That's what he's going to do. And number two, he will not build them up. Those nations and those kings will fall. So, it's very interesting when you look at those phrases in there, you'll see that they are more concerned in verse 4, with their own works and the work of their own hands than they are with the works of God and the works of His hands in verse 5. You see that? Verse 4 talks about the works of their hands and their own efforts, which they're really concerned about. And they ignore the works of God and the works of His hand in verse 5. Even though they know about it, they're more concerned about themselves than they are about God judging, he says. So, David prays that these people will be judged and he prays that he will be delivered. These people will go down to the pit. He doesn't want to go down to the pit. 
So he doesn't want to be put in the class with these people. So then when you get to verse 6, we have another change of focus. Verses 1 through 3, it focuses on, David says, on me, 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 me. Verses 4 and 5, on they, 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 they. Verses 6 to the end, on he. Now the focus changes to God. Now watch how he changes that focus in verse 6. This is the turning point of the psalm. Blessed be the Lord. Notice how he puts the focus on the Lord. Blessed be the Lord because he has heard the voice of my supplications. Plural. So here's the turning point. In the beginning, verse 1, what did he ask God to do? Hear. Verses 1 and 2, hear my supplications. By the end, by verse 6, God has heard his supplications. That's assurance. Taking took him five verses to get assurance. He prays through. Now this is a summary. David writes this long after these events happen. But what he's doing, he's summarizing for his audience, his readers, what this experience was like. And by verse 6, what he's basically saying is, hey, guess what? And God came through. In this situation, God came through. And that's what we should... God should always be coming through for us. There should never be a time that he doesn't come through. When we think that God should answer our prayers sometimes and not answer our prayers all the time, there's something wrong with that kind of theology. That's bad theology. Now, it's true that we need to be seeking God's will. He's not going to answer a prayer that's outside of his will. But we need to be seeking his will. And his will for you, I want you to know something, is good. Some of us have a false concept that God's angry at us all the time. God is not angry at us. He loves us. He wants what is best for us. He doesn't want to judge us. He wants to offer us mercy. He is like a father that wraps his arms around his children. Jesus said, oh, how I would have gathered you as a mother hen just gathers her chicks. But she wouldn't let me. That's what God wants. So by this time, David realizes that uh, God has answered his prayer. So this is a turning point. And he says, Bless the Lord, because he has heard the voice, there's that vocal again, the voice of my supplications, plural. And so notice that when the prayer gets answered, what he does is he begins to praise the Lord. And when we praise the Lord, we bless the Lord. This is one of the ways we can minister to him. There's something that makes his heart cheerful. And that's when we Come back after a prayer has been answered and we thank Him. We acknowledge that, hey, we didn't get through this on our own. This was God's doing. And remember the, the lepers who got healed and only one came back? And Jesus said, where are the nine? That's a condemnation on the church. So what happens is that David says that after the prayer is answered, he begins to bless the Lord. He praises the Lord. So Praise is always based on answered prayer. When God answers your prayer, you should recognize it, thank Him, and bless Him. Acknowledge that He was involved in this. And then verse 7, He says, The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusted in Him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart greatly rejoices. And with my song, I will praise Him. Now notice, in this verse, you'll see several things. First, you'll see David's declaration. Look at verse 9. The Lord is my strength and my shield. That's his declaration. 
These are military terms. Strength, power, shield. One is an offensive military term. Power. One is a defensive military term. Shield. Uh, this is making me think that uh, he is in a situation where probably he is going to be facing a battle, uh, maybe an invasion from uh, another king or another nation, maybe even a coup within the government, we don't know. But he says, in this situation, after he gets the answer to his prayer, he knows that God is his strength. God's going to go before him in the battle. And God is his shield. God will stay with him in the battle. And God will protect him. And he's not going to go down the tubes. He's going to come out victorious in this. Now notice that he says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. You see that again? There's that personalization of who God is. And then he says this. We have David's declaration. Now look at this. Next part of verse 7, you have David's confession. David's confession of faith. My heart trusted in him, and I am helped. Because he trusted in God as his strength and his shield, guess what? He says, because of who God is, I trusted in him, and this is the result. So this is his con confession. Therefore, my heart trusted in him. Look, my heart trusted in him. That's his confession of faith. My heart trusted in him. And the result, and I am helped. Look, my heart trusted in him. Faith. I am helped. Notice the order. Faith comes first. My heart trusted in him. Look at the result. I'm helped. Whenever you trust in God solely, and your hands out like this, say, oh Lord, I'm coming to you. Then help is soon on its way. So David realizes that. And then look what he says. And therefore, my heart greatly rejoices, and with my song I will praise him. Now notice there's an inner and an outer praise there. Do you see that? The inner praise. My heart greatly rejoices. Look at the outer praise. And with my song, I will praise him. See, it's not silent praise. It actually is vocal praise. He begins to sing to the Lord. So it's not half-heartedly, oh, I really thank the Lord, but I'm not going to you know, let anybody see that I'm that happy. That... No, I'm going to say, bless the Lord! You know, He doesn't care. David's not like us. He just gets... He doesn't care whether he's on tune, you know, anything like that. He praises the Lord, not half-heartedly, but with his whole being. And then he says, the Lord, now watch this, this is very interesting. He says, the Lord is my strength and my shield. Now look what he says in verse 8. The Lord is their strength. Some translation says, the Lord is the strength of his people, meaning the nation of Israel. And he is the saving refuge of his anointed, which is the king. So, here we see that God not only saves the king, his anointed, but he is the strength of his nation as well. Now, this is a very interesting thing, because what we have here is we have the king praying to God 
on behalf of not only himself, on behalf of the nation. Doesn't he represent the nation? When he says, God, don't let us go down, don't let me go down the pit, to the pit, don't let me die, he's saying, Lord, don't let this country be overthrown. And so here's the king praying to God, and he's standing up for his nation in prayer. What a picture of a leader. And then, if, God, if he's standing up for his nation, God will stand up for him. He's the king over his nation, but David himself has a king. And David's king is God. And so he trusts God to take care of himself, but not only that, give his nation strength in this situation. Then he says in verse 9, Save your people. Now remember that word save there. Don't think of it salvation or going to heaven here in the Old Testament. He's talking about deliverance. Deliver your people. And bless your inheritance. Deliver your people. This is what makes me think that what he's facing is an invasion. There's going to be an invasion. And what he's asking God to do is deliver the nation. Deliver the Jewish people. And don't allow him as the king to end up dead. And this nation being overthrown. He says, deliver your people. Rescue them. Bless your inheritance. Uh, the inheritance is the land and his people are God's inheritance. And so he says, protect your people and this land that you've given them. And then finally he says in verse 9, shepherd them also and bear them up occasionally. You see that right there in the verse 9? Shepherd them also and bear them up forever. So, we see here the saving work of God and we see the shepherding work of God. He not only protects them, He sustains them, He feeds them, He carries them as a shepherd carries a sheep who is helpless and gets its, it's caught in the thicket or gets injured, can't help itself, the shepherd comes along and the shepherd puts the sheep over his shoulder and he carries it and he anoints that sheep's head with oil and he heals that sheep and he brings it back to help. So David is saying, Lord, protect, save, deliver your people, and then take care of your people. So, this is the testimony of David in all of his psalms. You ever see a psalm where David doesn't come out victorious because God has stepped in on his behalf? This is one of those great psalms. And I think what we need to do is we need to get a fresh vision of God. God is my rock, my strength, my shield, my shepherd. We need to make sure that we see God in personal terms and that once we realize this, that the first thing we do, not the last thing we do, is that we act on it and we call out to Him. So our challenge uh, this week is to set aside a time this week just to pray for one thing. One thing that you're facing, but don't pray it for one, only one time. Pray it over and over again. Cry out and, and do it out loud until you have the assurance that God has answered that prayer. And then praise Him. And when we do that, we get in line with the Old Testament Scriptures. Okay, next week we'll pick up at Psalm 29, which is a psalm of David where he praises God for His holiness and for His majesty. Father, we thank You for the psalm. That we're back in the psalms this summer. Uh, very personal. You can apply every one of these 
lessons to our own lives. We see how far short, short we are. We see and how far we fall short as well. And we see how great you are and how you rejoice to intervene and show yourself as a mighty shield and the mighty power in our lives. Oh Lord, help us like little children to reach out to you and trust you and then praise you out loud without embarrassment, without fear of what people think. Help us to abandon our emotions unto you, uh, abandon our whole lives unto you, and we're better could we put our lives than in your hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.